I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Today we have the first part of an extended special interview with Jonathan Chaves. He deserves two podcasts because he is one of a handful of the top translators of classical Chinese poetry into English. Among his many accomplishments is the fact that he translated and edited the Columbia Book of Later Chinese Poetry. He also, long ago, translated the poems of Yang Wan Li in a lovely little book called Heaven My Blanket, Earth My Pillow. And most recently, the book Cave of the Immortals, poetry and prose of the bamboo painter Wen Tung, just published from Floating World Editions. Then, I'll be talking about Natalie Shapiro, professor of the practice of poetry at Tufts University. Her most recent book is called Hard Child, from Copper Canyon Press. Stick around. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Jonathan Chaves, one of the master translators of Chinese poetry into English. For many years, he was professor of Chinese language and literature at George Washington University. In 1985, a publication, The Columbia Book of Later Chinese Poetry, a tremendous accomplishment, uh, translated and edited by Chaves. It's a two-part thing, really. The first part was done by Burton Watson, which is called The Chinese Book, of, uh, the Columbia Book of Chinese Poetry. Uh, you definitely want both of them in your library. In terms of books about individual poets, he had a couple of them early in his career, which are really important, uh, at least to me. One is called Heaven, My Blanket, Earth, My Pillow. It's poetry of Yang Wan Li, published in 1975. Followed up shortly thereafter with the poems of Yuan Hongdao, Pilgrim of the Clouds. And that got a National Book Award nomination for translation. So we're going to be talking about Chinese poetry, translating, and whatever else Jonathan wants to talk about. So I'm so glad you're here, as you know. Uh Charlie, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on. All right. Um, I'm going to start with the, I've been told this is a really specialized area. Uh, I gave a talk at a library once and about a dozen people showed up and I was, you always want more people in the audience. And this friend of mine said, well, Charlie, you realize you're talking about Chinese poetry. How many people out there see a sign, lecture on Chinese poetry, want to come in and and like get into that. So uh, I'm wondering what, how you got into the field. And maybe China was less on people's minds back when you started, I'm sure. That's absolutely true. Well, this goes back to when I was in my mid-teens, 15, 16, as best I can uh, think. And a neighbor of mine, loaned me a book called The Uses of the Past by Herbert Muller. And I read it and discovered that there were great civilizations other than our own Western civilization. And I immediately knew that I had to read around and find out what the other people had to say to themselves. And I single-handedly undertook this great reading pilgrimage. One day I was in the library and it was up at Middlebury in your state of Vermont, by the way, 
during the summer, and I found the book Translations from the Chinese by Arthur Whaley. I read it, and I was in love. I felt as if these poets writing in the 8th, 9th century were absolutely my soulmates, were seeing the world as I had started to see it, uh, climbing around in the Green Mountains of Vermont, reading these poems, the Green Mountains of Vermont might just as well have been the sacred mountains of China. It all came together for me. And later on, when I was in college, I had an advisor who said to me, you seem to be so interested in Chinese literature and art, because I had fallen in love with the art as well. Why don't you study Chinese? We have it here. So I started in on the language. And before I knew it, I was a graduate student in Chinese literature at Columbia University. And my goal basically was to be able to read this poetry in the original classical literary Chinese and to do research on it and translate it. And I knew as far as a career was concerned that that meant that I would be a teacher. And the big problem there was I hated talking in public. I was actually extremely shy, very much of a loner, but I figured that, okay, somehow or other that'll work out. Uh, and in the course of time, it's, it, it has turned out that I do like teaching and public speaking very much. In fact, I've become something of a ham. So please let me know whenever you want me to shut up. No, no, you're the perfect interviewee because uh, you have things to say, you know, and you elaborate on your basic ideas. So that's that's really excellent. Here's another question that I are kind of basic. Uh what would you? What could you say to be kind of like the elevator speech, the ba sort of basic little statement about um, how you characterize? How would you characterize classical Chinese poetry? Say this is, you know, it's almost like you got a classroom of freshmen; they never heard of it at all. Can you generalize, or what did you say if you did generalize? What what, what would you say about it? I would, I would have to start by saying that, in actual fact, there are a number of different uh, trends and streams in classical Chinese poetry. But the ones that have most appealed to me have been, first of all, the nature poetry. Uh, and if I had to pick one characteristic above all others, that would be it. Already by the 4th, 5th century, you have poets writing nature poems that are so um, compelling in conveying the feeling of magic, even the feeling of spirituality that we have when we're in the mountains or out on a lake or beneath the moon. They conveyed this to me when I first read them uh, completely and that in itself, I think, is one major characteristic. Hmm. Another characteristic that appealed to me tremendously from the first was the humor, self-deprecating type of humor that I felt was extremely hmm. appealing. I've always had a, a kind of sense of humor. And when I was growing up, I loved the great stand-up comics like Jack Benny, Sam Levinson. Does that name mean anything to you? Yeah. <laughs> These are the great stand-up comics, you know, from the 50s. And I 
got some of the feeling of their humor in this poetry. Bo Yi from the Tang Dynasty makes fun of himself all the time. He presents himself as, as, a, as a klutz almost. He has a whole poem uh, called In Praise of Laziness, <laughs> in which he tells us that he is the laziest person who ever lived. He says, I have wine, but I'm too lazy to pour it out. I have a lute, but I'm too lazy to play it. I have a garden, but I'm too lazy to plant it. It goes on and on like that. <laughs> I mean, you got to love it. <laughs> you're, you're reminding me of, of uh, I guess, scenes like Yang Wan Lee getting drunk and falling down among the flowers. Ah, There's no such thing like that, you know. <laughs> he's, willing right. to, he's willing to admit yeah. that, you know, to, to the public. I, I fall down among yeah. the flowers. <laughs> Exactly. That 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 one situation summarizes it all. That the, these are real human beings. They are they love the things that need to be loved, such as nature, art and music, literature, poetry, of course. Uh, and they are able to make fun of themselves. They're able to just give themselves, even as you just pointed out, even physically just kind of collapse into the flowers. I mean, you, you want you want to sometimes, you want to get physical about it. How do all the, you're reminding me of um, some of the content that I enjoy less is when sometimes I'll get a book of poems and like two thirds of them are, I'm saying goodbye to my friend who's going off to battle or leaving or going off to a new office or something like that. Where yes. does that fit in from, from your perspective? Um, you, you have put your finger on the single most common theme in all of classical Chinese poetry, which is saying farewell. Uh, it's either saying goodbye, the poet saying goodbye to someone who's leaving for war, for a new uh, official position, or some other reason, or the poet is saying goodbye and leaving the poem for those that he is leaving behind in the capital. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that the Chinese governmental system was the world's most elaborate and far-flung uh, bureaucracy uh, in history until modern times. In fact, I sometimes think it's very appropriate that I live, in, I work in and live near Washington, D.C., because the only comparably complex bureaucracy I can think of is today's federal government. And these individuals, however, were sent to their local positions in the yeah. provinces by the central government. And they had to be switched to a new position every three years so that they would not be able to start up a political faction mm. in a given locality. So they were not traveling around voluntarily for the most part. They were compelled to travel by the nature of their jobs and they were all of them government officials serving in the bureaucracy. So they their primary mood when they travel is one of sadness. They don't, they're not where they want to be. They want to be either back in the capital serving the emperor or back in their hometown serving their parents, they want to be saying goodbye to the dusty world, 
but they also want to be engaged in it in the right way. At the same time, all of that is going on. They love the beauty that they are seeing. They're traveling by foot, by horse, by ox-drawn carriage, by boat throughout China, thousands of miles of magnificent scenery, and they are moved to poetry by that, which is underpinned by a tone of sadness. And it, it occurs to me that that's pretty much like, well, I'm not going to say it's like life, because the only life I've been living is my own. It's like my life. It's like I'm never exactly where I think I should be. I'm always something like a stranger in a strange land. But there's great beauty around me. It makes me want to write poetry. That I mean, that alone is enough to make me soulmates with these guys. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that the, that it was it was going to happen that they'd move every three years. I'm, I'm all the time I've been reading this. I notice somebody's always going somewhere, getting banished from the capital, or getting called back in, or, or what? Well, they're getting know. banished. The banishment or exile takes the form of being sent from the capital to some local sinecure of a position in way, way out in the boondocks. And that is virtual exile. And it happens all the time because of political factionalism. You know, we have our Republican and Democratic parties. They had factions. And the Chinese word for faction, dang, is the same word that the Chinese use today for a political party, hmm. like Gung Chan Dang, the Communist Party. These factions were the all-important polarities at court. And if you, the, the poet-scholar, happen to be associated with the wrong faction, the one that's on the outs, bye-bye, you are now the dog catcher of Hushan <laughs> County, in the far south, you know, 3,000 miles away. When you, If you read the Cave of, of the Immortals book, Wen Tung, mm. he is particularly articulate on this. He writes many of these poems from some of his remote exile positions, and he keeps saying things like, who needs to write a poem retiring back home, as Tao Chen did, I never had a job, you know, from which I could quit because instead I'm getting sent out to these places by the powers that be. That's a good one. Yeah. He's, he's always in the hinterlands. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't have to worry about getting away from, from the big sea. Uh, yeah. Well, you, you remind that I had something here. I was thinking about this, about the characteristics of, of these poems. I wanted to read one, one of Yang Wan Lee's, obviously, my man. <laughs> and uh, I want to read you this brief poem and tell me um, what you think, like, you get out of it. People Sometimes these poems can be uh, the kind of thing where you read it and you go, well, all right, that was a nice little description of the moon and the river, you know, uh, and, and like there's not much there. But I yeah, feel like I know what you mean. there's much there. And, and it's real subtle. I could not, I don't think, articulate it, but I thought I could let you try anyway. <laughs> and you've probably you've thought about this more than I have. And this is the poem that includes the title line. So this is Yang Wan Lee. 
and it's called On a Portrait of Myself. The pure wind makes me chant poems. The bright moon urges me to drink. Oops. Intoxicated, I fall among the flowers. Heaven, my blanket. Earth, my pillow. That's the kind of poetry that most of my colleagues, professors, hate because you, you don't need to say anything about it. It speaks for itself. I mean, it, it, to me, this it's like it's perfect. It's between heaven and earth. The phrase heaven and earth, 10D, means the whole world. It's a, it's a key phrase in Chinese. And the idea is that I, I have this feeling as a poet of being between heaven above, earth below. I'm comfortable there. Heaven is my blanket, earth is my pillow. And what's really good? What can I really count on here? I can count on wine. I can count on poetry. I can count on flowers. I'm going to just collapse among them. And I mean, what what better philosophy of life could you possibly want? And it's like car, it's carpe diem elevated to the highest possible level. Yeah. And it's the pure wind that makes him chant poems. Exactly. And notice, by the way, I don't say I want to be a poet. I'm going to go out and write poetry come hell or high water. It makes me. Right. Yeah. The poet doesn't go out in search of a poem. The poem comes in search of him. Those are two more lines by Yang Wanli. Mm -hmm. I mean, how great is that? I am channeling somehow or other. Poetry has made it possible for me to channel the universe, everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was. I was curious. I some and I do sometimes read some of these poems. I feel like, well, there's not much there, but the, but then some of them is it's kind of the same, but it's so much more. Uh, I mean, you know, there is a whole lot there. It's obvious. Some I guess the obviousness of what's there yeah. is well. He, you know, uh, he on a over and above that, there are times when I sit down and and pull out poems that I know I love and start reading them and I get nothing out of them at all. There are times when I listen to the greatest music, cantatas by Bach, I get nothing out of it. And the problem isn't in the music or the poetry, it's in me. I'm not there, you know? It's yeah. like, it, it's like uh, there are Buddhist monks who write poems about how disappointed they are in their, in their failure of meditation to do anything for them. Um, and these are monks that we know are highly regarded um, by history. You're not there all the time. It's almost cyclical. You're in the zone. You're out of the zone. At least yeah. I find it to be that way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because I, I have had that same experience now that you mentioned. I'll go back to a book I thought, well, I don't know, this didn't really grab me. And then it's like, whoa. Um, so Jonathan, one thing that occurred to me uh, in thinking about translations, and you've translated so many poets, is can you think of a poet or poems that gave you particular difficulty in trying to do the translations? And what was that about? Uh, yes, I would say that, uh, in, first of all, in general, there are certain poems that almost seem to translate themselves. And if the poem does not have any allusions to prior texts in it, uh, 
and it's of that type, I can usually do it pretty rapidly, actually. But then there are other poems that have a great many allusions in them. Those need to be researched, and sometimes hours of research can go into them. The one poet in general who has given me the most trouble, but it was pleasant trouble, it was a pleasant challenge, if you will, was Wu Weiye of the 17th century, early Qing dynasty, also a painter. As a poet, um, I state in the Columbia Book of Later Chinese Poetry, where I have a section on him, that I consider him to be the single greatest poet of the entire later period, defined as the last three dynasties, uh, Yuan Ming Qing, that is from the from the uh, 13th century into the early 20th. Mm. He is really a giant of Chinese poetry. And, his, and you said his style. Yeah, he's really dense, you said. Exactly. His style is much denser. It is, um, it is not as loose and almost colloquial as Yang Wanli, for example. And I made it my challenge when I was doing that segment of that book to make the translations as close as I could to that style. Get denser English, a little more oblique in the presentation of the storyline and one long narrative poem that he has, very difficult with it. He is telling a story of an actual historical experience of a concubine, of a key general uh, in the wars that led to the uh, founding of the Qing dynasty. But he unfolds the story very lyrically, obliquely, um, going off into dream, back into reality. That was tough. Yeah. Well, let, let's hear some. We have to be sure to have a few poems in these podcasts. So how about reading us some poems? I would be delighted to do that. Uh, and I've got a couple of poems here by a poet named Wang Jun, who is from the later part of the Southern Song Dynasty, died sometime after 1214, and whom I've loved for decades. This is, this is one of those people that I've loved for decades, and one day I think, why don't I do him? And I can never tell exactly what kicks that off. Um, but here's one, which is called Scent. Ah, excuse me, wrong title. Here's one which is called On a Spring Day, echoing a poem by Liu Mingyuan. So his friend Liu Mingyuan, who is completely unknown, would have written a poem to echo the poem. He in Chinese means to do a poem of your own on the same theme and sometimes even follow the same rhyme words of the other poem, which makes it very difficult, keeping in mind that these poems all rhyme in the original. So on a spring day, echoing a poem by Liu Mingyuan. No matter the sound of raindrops from the eaves, the wind has brought back last night's clear skies. The stairs are covered with the green of spring plants and a few petals fallen lightly from blossoms. Know your lot in life and poverty can be enjoyed. Stop competing. Even your dreams will be serene. I observe how you discuss the recluse life. Like me, you wish to escape 
from fame. Mm. Yeah. And then another one that I uh, particularly like is called Things Happening Now, Expressing My Feelings. And Things Happening Now, Ji Shi in Chinese is a phrase that Wong Gren in particular uses a great deal to emphasize this is really happening. I'm not making it, this is it, okay? So things happening now, expressing my feelings. I've written about my eccentric nature, which surely leads my traces far away. The only friends I have are rustic guests and what we talk about is poetry. Listening to rain, I sleep in monks' quarters, watching clouds stand on a fishing raft. Autumn comes, I write new verses, most of them about chrysanthemums. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. We've been visiting with Jonathan Chaves, talking about translation and hearing some of his translations from the Chinese. Now I'd like to talk about a wonderful poet I recently encountered, Natalie Shapiro. She's currently a professor of poetry at Tufts University and also editor-at-large of the Kenyan Review. Interestingly, she holds degrees in both creative writing and in law and worked as a litigation fellow with Americans United for Separation of Church and State. She's got a number of awards. She's taught at some wonderful colleges and universities, but I want to focus on her poetry. So just to give you uh, a sense of what she does. Number one, when I went to her website, one of the tabs at the homepage said, not for sale, which is, I consider, rather enigmatic. I clicked on it, and sure enough, there were four or five or six photos of objects in the world with little tags on them that said not for sale like uh, one was some little those little colored padded dumbbells that people use for exercise must have been a yard sale somewhere and the person <laughs> didn't want to sell their dumbbells and you know on the counter when you push the little thing ding to ding to call the to call the clerk there was one of those with a note that said not for sale and all i can say is when i saw those things i immediately felt like they really communicated the kind of attitude that Natalie communicated in person in her reading at Bennington College, where I heard her just a few weeks earlier. So I'm just going to give you a couple of excerpts from a couple of her poems, and uh, it'd be up to you to follow up. Her poems are online. Um, she's on Twitter, that, you know, slash Natalie Shapiro, S-H-A-P-E-R-O. This first one is called Sun Shower. If you look that up, it's when the sun is shining, there's no clouds in the sky, but rain is somehow coming down. Sun shower. Some people say the devil is beating his wife. Some people say the devil is pawing his wife. Some say the devil is doubling down on an overall attitude of entitlement toward the body of his wife. Some people say the devil won't need to be sorry, as the devil believes that nothing comes after this life. Some people say that in spite of the devil's public long-standing and meticulously logged disdain for the health and wholeness of his wife, the devil spends all day, every day, insisting grandly and gleefully on his generally pro-woman ethos, etc. 
he she goes on. I, as I said, the good the good Ms. Shapiro has what I think is just a great attitude, and uh, it, it was one of the more enjoyable readings I have heard in a long time. Here are some. That's not the whole poem. Here are some bits from another poem called "An Example." Where can the dead hope to stash some part of themselves, if not in the living? So when I had a daughter, I gave her your name. She does not use it. She goes by a silly other thing. She was called once in fun, and then often enough that it stuck. But, oh, her hideous pill-eyed toys, to them each she has given her given name. And so it is you I hear her again and again calling to. It is your name, she shrieks. And she goes on talking about the way the daughter, of course, has to use this name to address all of her various stuffed animals. I know this is brief, but I just, when I run into something I'd like you to know about, I want to get it on here and uh, get it out there. Natalie Shapiro. Remember that name. She writes wonderful poetry. And if you ever get a chance to hear her read, do not pass it up. I'm Charlie Rossiter. This has been Poetry Spoken Here. Be with us again next time. And let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Munley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. Thank you.